It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. It's been over 20 years since terrorists attacked the United States on 9-11, killing over 3,000 people. After the dust settled, it quickly became clear that Al-Qaeda, an organization based in Afghanistan, was responsible. Our guest for this episode is Phil Riley, a former CIA paramilitary officer who was the first American on the ground in the wake of the attacks, assisting the Northern Alliance and helping prepare the battlefield for the U.S. response. As you can imagine, Phil has led quite an interesting life before and during his service as a CIA officer. We caught up with him in between overseas trips. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Freedom Consulting Group. If you're looking for stimulating work in our national security intelligence sector, check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. So Phil Riley, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. It's terrific to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So before we get into the adrenaline pack life previously you led as a paramilitary officer for the CIA. It might help our listeners if you tell us a little bit about the CIA, at least to the extent that you can, you know, how it's organized and also where the paramilitary operations fit into the whole picture. Sure. CIA uh, was created in 1947 and it's an intelligence collection and all source analysis capability for the United States government. That's what its primary mission is, but it also has a covert action uh, mission to conduct, uh, at the president's direction, special operations uh, of a very low-profile uh, nature. When I left in 2014, there were four directorates. There are now five, including digital innovation, science and technology, analysis, operations, and support. There are five now, and they uh, work very well together, very much linked. And then there are mission centers uh, based on geographic regions, and in some cases, specific missions like counterterrorism, counterproliferation. Uh, and now, most recently in the press, it indicates that there's a China mission center focused on those uh, types of uh, operations. So uh, CIA, um, I guess the numbers are actually classified, but uh, let's just put scores of uh, thousands of people spread around the world, operating everywhere, essentially, but with a major nexus here in the, the Washington, D.C. area. And how does uh, the paramilitary piece fit into that? Obviously, a little more closely held. If I'm an analyst, it's one thing. If I'm out there uh, overseas, undercover, that kind of thing, it's a little different. No, that's right. And, and to, the, to the layman, CIA essentially has a small Army, Air Force, and Navy to conduct military-like operations, but not as U.S. military. We're capable of working with the U.S. military and frequently do, but we also operate unilaterally. Uh, we recruit extensively from the U.S. special operations community. I would say 100% of the ground branch, which is in the Army, roughly analogy, analogous elements, is um, all prior special operations uh, people from the U.S. military community, all, all of the services. And a significant number of the maritime and air branch personnel come out of the uh, military as well. So there's a tremendous innate understanding of the military in the CIA, because particularly in the paramilitary ranks, because we all came from that world. Uh, oftentimes, if you go down to a JSOC unit, a special mission unit of the United States government today, and, and put 100 guys in a room and say, who here has been in CIA? You may not get a hand raised. 
But if you go to ground branch and you ask how many people served in the U.S. military, 100% of the hands will be raised. So is there any carryover from the, the operations side to the analysis side personnel-wise? Do people move maybe when they're done with operations into analysis? Because it seems like the analysis side could always benefit from operations. That's true of any organization, by the way. That's a very good question. The vetting process to get into CIA is extremely thorough. And you are analyzed for basically what your your skill set is, what, what what area you should really go into. An operations person will have a certain profile, and I happen to fit that. An analysis and an analyst will have a certain profile. And so while you can go between the two, it is very rare. Generally, you come into one of those and you stick with it. Yeah. And isn't it true, Phil, that um, you know younger people coming out of college who don't necessarily have the pedigree of special operations would, would go into analysis right away, but you're not going to take somebody right out of college into the, like you said, you've got to have some experience to be out there in the field. Is that, is that a true state? Well, CIA does like life experience. They do take some young people and put them into a professional trainee program for a few years and get them ready. And then of course, then they go through all their formal training. But, but most of the case officers or operations officers uh, that are not paramilitary officers are, in fact, people out of academia, kids coming out of college or law school. But generally, yes, they want several years of real life experience uh, doing something else. You know, one of the things that I wanted to get out early in this discussion was, you know, the, the CIA has this sort of brand, right? At, at various places around the world, like, oh my God, it's the CIA, it must be evil. When in fact, you know, there's a lot of great work going on in support of not only the US, but our allies there. And I was struck by a wonderful talk that the current director, uh, Bill Burns, gave down at Georgia Tech, uh, Sandra and my alma mater. Uh, just humility, uh, straightforward, really explaining what it's all about. I, I just encourage our listeners to take a peek at that. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it, Phil, but it's terrific. I have. And, and again, a guy like Ambassador Burns is is uh, so well credentialed to be the director of CIA. You can argue what, what the pedigree actually should be, but you're hard pressed to not say uh, the former ambassador to uh, Russia is not someone who's not suitable right here and now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Somebody who's maybe sat down and had tea with Putin. Uh, not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, you can speak the language, know the guy. Yeah, yeah. He's got a few strengths. Yeah. Some, sometimes the timing in the world works out well. That's good to know. So you had some pretty interesting jobs even before you got into the CAA. And I think something called a special atomic demolition team. What was that all about? Well, yeah. When I left Georgetown, I uh, I think I told you I did what you're not supposed to do. I enlisted in the U.S. Army. I wanted to be a Green Beret. So with my Georgetown degree, I went to the Army. But on a on a path or at the time that was available to young people coming in and, and uh, make it through all the hurdles through special forces. So, yeah, I was in the, a Green Beret in the 7th Special Forces Group in the early 1980s and was assigned to a HALO uh, team, a high-altitude jump team uh, with the SATA mission, a Special Atomic Demolition Munition Mission, which is a backpack nuke, which are no longer in the U.S. inventory, but they were at the time. And they were in theory for operations where at the time U.S. Uh, airframes or Air Force or missiles uh, would not be uh, targeted. So um, we did a lot of training, a lot of jumping, high altitude. High altitude is anything over 15 grand. Most of our jumps were about 25,000 feet with that device. And then as a team, uh, we had other missions that were associated with getting that device into place. But I was a demolition sergeant, so uh, mine dealt with the emergency destruct procedures. You left off an important part of HALO, and that is the LO part, which is low opening. So here you are jumping out at high altitude, coasting in there, and opening that parachute at very low altitude, but at least you had a nuclear weapon attached to your back. 
Yeah, that's not risky at all. No, 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 no. Yeah, was, I, I, I was very lucky. I was not a natural jumper. I learned it for the military, both jump school and halo school. But I was on a team of super experienced people. Uh, there's a jump community and culture. If you really get into skydiving and, and high, halo jumping, you can meet people. And I did meet people with thousands and thousands of jumps. And so they, their capabilities were just just absolutely remarkable. So you felt very safe. And when you're out of that plane, you're on your own, right? You've got to deploy that canopy or get your reserve in, into gear. And I've had and I've had malfunctions. I've had to use my reserve, but but you have a real sense of uh, safety given the caliber of the people that were on the team. I was the least experienced by far, to be honest. But at least you were doing it at night. Yeah, it was at night. Yeah, with oxygen, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and and I don't care what goggles they provided you in the day, they always would fog up. So you're trying to look at that altimeter frantically to make sure you had the right altitude. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I had the opportunity to jump once from 14,000 with a tandem because I was just curious what it was like. And I can't imagine doing that a lot, but it, it was interesting. <laughs> Yeah, we had a great episode previously with Blanco, who uh, was you know, working in this uh, brewery where a rival gang members man the thing and and their graduation exercises to jump out of an airplane. And, uh, you know, most of them have never even been in an airplane and having to jump out of it for the first time. Pretty amazing. Well, so, so let me ask you, you you, uh, you started out in the special forces. And by the way, there's a pretty high, I don't know if it was like this then, but high percentage of special operators that have college degrees. So you weren't necessarily alone in that regard. But what was the path you took to get into the CIA? There had to be other alternatives out there. You chose the CIA or they chose you, one or the other. That's right. I was getting ready to to uh, ETS or leave the service after three years. And I had this desire to go to Delta Force. But of course, I would have to re-up and re-enlist for that. And I realized probably uh, the officer ranks were where I should go. So what I did was I uh, started to look at the U.S. Navy, Naval Aviator Program, and started to go through uh, the hoops to to go into the Navy upon exiting the Army. That said, at the exact same time, I did get a tap on the shoulder from a CIA representative at Fort Bragg uh, that was located there then and is still there with one of his duties is to to identify people coming out who may be suitable for, for the CIA. So I got tapped on the shoulder and I was running both the Naval uh, Aviator Program and the CIA in parallel. And frankly, the CIA only won because they, they offered the job quicker. So I was eager to to take that. And plus, you know, let's face it, the mystique was there. I knew very little about what I was getting into. I had never heard of what a paramilitary officer was, had some rough idea, um, but uh, it made a lot of sense. At the time, if you call in the early 80s, the Contra effort in the Central America was going strong. I was a 7th Special Forces Group guy, which covers Central America, South America. So it made a lot of sense to bring a person like me in and then turn them around and use them on that effort, which is exactly what CIA did. So we in naval aviation let a good fish off the hook is what you're trying to tell me. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> by, I, by the way, that interest was pre-Top Gun, as I like to say, and I know you were in that film. Uh, this is before uh, it became really sexy, but it was, it, frankly, it was, it was exciting. If you want to serve your country by being on the front lines of providing critical information to our nation's key decision makers, consider a career in the intelligence community. Freedom Consulting Group offers a highly rewarding way to be part of the intelligence community in the private sector. If you're an experienced coder and an American citizen and are looking for a great work environment, job security, and terrific benefits, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. What kind of training, well, at least that you can talk about, did you do to prepare for your, some of your paramilitary operations or just in general? 
Well, see, see I, and, and that's a great question. And and they do more now uh, in preparation for, for the cycles that were until very recently for 20 years going back and forth to Afghanistan and other troubled areas. At the time, I like well, we like to say CIA is a consumer of skills. I mean, we let the U.S. military do so much of the actual training. So you come credentialed and basically you're getting additional paramilitary skills specific to CIA, let's say equipment or team or the way we operate. Uh, but the biggest piece you're going to get is the paramilitary officer at CIA today, and this wasn't always the case 25 or 30 years ago, is you're going to also get the operational training as a case officer, as a collector of intelligence, uh, being able to go out and spot, assess, develop, and recruit foreign sources for, for CIA. So you are dual-hatted. Paramilitary may be your, your primary focus, but you also have the case officing skills. So that is all trained, and you're provided that training at the farm. But you still need, I think, recurring, I mean, when we were training for a shuttle, even when we weren't flying, we were doing sims periodically to keep our skill sets up. So you still had ongoing refresher training, right? We did ex extensively. We have facilities around the U.S. Uh, or we borrow U.S. military facilities at the time, and we do a lot of our uh, training. And we also would send people back. For instance, I did special operations training with the U.S. military as a CIA officer going, going back. When I went through HALO training in the Army, there were two f fellows with long hair. I said, I don't know who these two are, but they were CIA people going through <laughs> the HALO course at the time. Wow. So we'll get into uh, some of your interesting experiences in South Asia in a bit, but you know, you didn't start there. You uh, began your career as a paramilitary officer uh, elsewhere. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, it was the mid 80s and um, they were using us extensively in Central America. Uh, against the Sandinistas, the whole Contra effort, if you will. Uh, at the time, you know, we were not in direct kinetic operations against against the Sandinistas. We were training and equipping the Contras and other elements with the equipment or the gear they needed to conduct the operations. So like surface-to-air missiles, man pads, and things like that. We, 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 we provide the training. So yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of that. And then also at the same time, mid-80s was the Africa Bush Wars and various conflicts on pushing back on the then Soviet Union, which had Cuban proxy forces all throughout Africa. And we were doing operations against them in certain places. Most Americans, including myself, don't really know much about those Bush wars. Uh, you know, what was the dynamic? What was going on? And why did, why were we involved? Uh, yeah, I guess just, just trying to push back against the, the Soviets or... That, that's exactly right. I mean, you still stop the spread of communism. It sounds almost you know, humorous today, but at, at that time in the early 80s, right, you were stopping the spread. So, the Soviet Union had not collapsed yet, but they were overextended. Again, they were using Cuban proxies. And so wherever they were trying to spread uh, communism or some of their allies, uh, we were there to, to push back in one way or another. I'm not suggesting they were kinetic or, or paramilitary operations all throughout the continent. They were all forms of covert action from covert influence to some technical operations. But from a paramilitary perspective, yes, those operations did go on. And I would imagine that uh, your Latin American experience would help you understand how the Cubans were operating on the continent there. It wasn't just like totally lifting and shifting. You kind of had a sense for what was going on already. No, you're exactly right. And to be honest, a lot of the weapon systems are the same. The man pads, uh, you know, the Stinger obviously is very, very famous. The precursor to that was the Red Eye, it was a more primitive version, but also very effective in bringing down airframes and then Stinger. So a lot of the weapon systems, yeah, carried over. Um, as a paramilitary officer, you had to know those systems. We were going to be introducing them or utilizing them. Be a little bit different. I mean, for instance, in some of the Africa Bush Wars, there was armor involved, okay? You didn't have that in, in the Central American conflict. So again, very different weapon systems be brought to bear. 
Tom Missile, I mean, for instance, could, could, could be brought to bear. It's interesting to say that because you, you jump forward to even the current crisis and the Tom Missile's not completely out of the game. Yeah, no kidding. It's a big, a big shift. A lot of people are waking up to the fact that big, slow, non-stealthy things are pretty vulnerable to these the small, smart things, right? <laughs> okay. So most of us visualize someone sort of covertly going into another land as a James Bondish. You know, we have there's a lot of popular, you know, romanticism about some of this. But you were probably weren't wearing a tuxedo with a a pistol underneath, but. But still, there are always special toys, as it were. So do you have, or did you have at your disposal, something like a Q? Oh, yeah. I know the Office of Science and Technology, the OTS, and is, is, is remarkable. It is the real Q. By the way, in the British service, they have a Q. There's that, that's an actual legitimate thing. There is a Q. <laughs> um, but their budgets are not like they are in the James Bond movies, I assure you, my, my British <laughs> colleagues. Uh, but in the U.S., they can be. Uh, but you're correct. We, we would deploy... Again, I'm speaking as a paramilitary officer, often in an alias persona uh, with alias documentation and operates as not as as a uh, U.S. official. That was very much easier in the 80s and before. Uh, Got more difficult in the 90s. Got very hard in the early 2000s. And I think it's damn near impossible now to operate uh, in an alias persona, given ubiquitous technical surveillance and all the intertwined connectivity of the different uh, uh, security apparatus around the world. But, uh, and I, I'll leave it at that because I'm no longer in government service, but there's probably ways to still defeat that. But it's very, very different world than when, when, when I was a young buck and you could put together an alias credit card and a couple, you know, and, and, a, and a driver's license and passport and go. Yeah, much different. And any uh, cool devices? Uh, I, obviously, that are out of service right now. Obviously, you couldn't talk about anything that you know of that's being used. But we had very interesting communications capabilities that, frankly, would still be uh, interesting even now. And obviously, everything's overtaken now by how do you, how do you operate even on the internet and and and, and obscure or obfuscate what you're doing. But back then, satellite communications with special devices and all were very very uh, interesting to me. In terms of weapon systems, no, not really. We would we would often use what was available to our military colleagues. I mean, there was, there was an agency sidearm. There still is an agency-issued sidearm. It's changed over time. But again, in the paramilitary ranks, you use whatever you needed to do. I mean, an AK-47 is not an issued U.S. military weapon. But but again, frequently where we operate, that may be the only thing at hand. Interesting. So so let's uh, let's move on. I, I found myself off the coast of Pakistan on an aircraft carrier immediately after the terror attacks of 911. But we didn't do anything for a month while all the diplomacy worked its way out and all that sort of thing. But you were the... F- if I'm not mistaken, the very first American security person, what have you, on the ground in Afghanistan after those terrible attacks. Can you give our listeners a sense for uh, how that all came about when you arrived and and sort of what you were doing? Yeah, sure. I was in language training, learning uh, Serbo-Croatian, actually, on the morning of 9-11. And uh, like a lot of uh, colleagues, Americans, uh, when we saw the horrible events on TV, uh, I knew within minutes, in some cases, uh, that it was a terrorist strike. People tried to volunteer and get back into the fray. So, so Serbia, Croatia was no longer important to me, and getting into the response was critical. I was very lucky, and I was picked to be on what was known as the jawbreaker team. Picked about two or three days after 9-11. We started to assemble CIA, a team of people, to go in. The president was offered a number of, at the time, George Bush was offered a number of uh, courses of action, for reasons, again, you, 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 Sandy, you probably know better than I, 
DOD just did not have a very immediate, quick response on, on the shelf to go. Uh, George Tenet, director of CIA, and some others did. And what it was was we would send a team in to work with the Northern Alliance, which we had a relationship with. Uh, however dodgy that relationship was, we had one. And we had the air assets in theater or near theater that we could get to. And so we prepared a 10-man team, seven men on the ground and a three-person air crew. So 10 people, we would be utilizing an MI-17 Russian airframe staged in the area that recently had been refitted. We had not been into the Northern Alliance for six months or more of the CIA, but that was the mechanism we were going to use. And the mission was straightforward, get to the Northern Alliance, bring them to our side, and, and prepare the way for the introduction of uh, U.S. military boots on the ground, as well as collect intelligence on al-Qaeda, the perpetrators of the events of 9-11. So what kind of risks did that entail, and how did you deal with them? It was interesting. Um, I had done a lot of work, and we talked a bit about it already, uh, with working with liaison. And liaison can be everybody as formal and as great as the Brits or the Australians, and it can also be a, a bushfighter somewhere. But I had no, knew how to work with liaison, so I was not really concerned uh, with, with with dealing with um, the Northern Alliance. Again, not to get too far into the weeds, but two days before 9-11, Ahmad Shah Massoud, the head of the Northern Alliance, was also assassinated by al-Qaeda. That event completely galvanized the Northern Alliance to our side, the side of the USA. And so I didn't think correctly that there would be any problem, that they would be want to join with us. And in fact, they did. Uh, my biggest concern then uh, was, uh, and probably remains, getting in and out in a rickety uh, MI-17, the, the uh, way in through Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and down into... Uh, the Panchir Valley, you have to go up to 15,000 feet in this this older helicopter and get over, clear a pass and then descend. So I, it was always, to me, was going to be a mechanical issue. Uh, I've often said if we were going to have a massive loss of life in, in, in uh, CIA standards in uh, Afghanistan, it would have been a helo loss. But to knock on wood, uh, we have not had that uh, happen. Um, anyway, that was my biggest concern um, was getting in. Once in, we were there to map enemy positions. Again, at that time, the Taliban still controlled the entire country. So we, we were mapping positions using uh, uh, military gear and, and, and our own, the Kabul front and what was known as the Takar front up to the northwest. Again, the Northern Alliance owned a small little sliver of Afghanistan. Everything else were bad guys. And again, our team was, was the first one in, and we brought in on October 16th the first U.S. Army Special Forces. On that period of darkness, they came into the Kabul area, and they also went up to uh, Dostum, one of the warlords we were working with, and uh, put a team in up there as well. That's the first of the start of the Special Forces coming in. And so CIA, in the case of Jawbreak, it was all CIA initially. We then had Special Forces Operational Detachment come in, and then in the future— CIA would send a five or six man team. It would be linked up with the Special Forces ODA, 12 man team, and they would deploy throughout the country. There were about eight or 10 of those teams. So you do the math. And when Kabul fell, there were about 300 U.S. boots on the ground. That's it at the time between Special Forces and CIA. And I always like to credit the U.S. air power played a not insignificant role in completely uh, crushing the, uh, the Taliban. Looking for meaningful employment within the intelligence community? Look no further. Freedom Consulting Group's a great place to work and has several open positions for American citizens in the technology field. Technical teams at Freedom focus on using the right technology to create flexible, long-lasting solutions for key clients. 
So if you're an experienced coder looking for a fantastic position in the world of intelligence, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. So you really didn't start operating with special forces until after the war actually began, because the, the October 7th was when the first bombs fell. And of course, we were involved in that along with other, a lot of other people. But we were really going after more strategic targets, you know, surface to air missile sites and what we thought might be command and control nodes for Al-Qaeda and the like. But, but you know, once that was done, the, the real sort of struggle started on the ground. And that's where your teams were instrumental. You know, here's, you hear stories of, of, you know, joint tactical air controllers on horseback directing, you know, Air Force, Navy and Marine air, aircraft in there. Were your teams with them directly talking to those airplanes or were you feeding the intelligence back a different way, uh, just identifying where the Taliban was, was located? Early when, when, when the jawbreaker was on the ground alone, we were pumping everything back to Washington. We had soft lands. We had the technical gear to do exactly what you're saying. But most of our reporting was on the enemy positions and where it was. And also the other missions I described, bringing the Northern Alliance to us, introducing the U.S. military. But no, the other teams that went in, all subsequent teams, uh, and they were they were cleverly named Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta Echo. Um, <laughs> they, they were joint teams. Uh, but typically, as you know, Andy, the U.S. military prefers to have a U.S. military guy on the other end of the radio. So they were typically the ODA communicators were the ones calling in specific airstrikes. But again, they were co-located. There was no us and them. It was just one team in every one of these locations. Yeah. So you don't want uh, some Afghan person on the radio calling in an airstrike on their bitter uh, family feud. And no. yeah, that's why we want, you know, somebody we know on the other end of the of the pipe there. Exactly right. And even with that, and you know, there were events, and unfortunately, there were errant strike on a, people you know, hitting themselves. Uh, that was the famous one down in the Kandahar region. So mistakes can be made in the, you know, the, the haze of war. Amazing. Was the feel different? You know, all of the paramilitary operations you had done up to this point were, were sort of indirectly, you know, supporting another nation in its struggle against the Soviet Union or something like that. But this, this had to feel a little more personal. Did you think of that a lot or was it just, let's get the job done? No, I did. The, 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 uh, the magnitude of this, this was completely different. Uh, certainly for me, I, I would assume for everybody involved. This was the 9-11, the uh, this is the Pearl Harbor, I should say, of our generation. I've often thought of it that way. I'm a New Yorker. Uh, I had a cousin in, lost in the uh, Trade Center. I felt really, really uh, visceral about it. I mean, you're a professional, so you don't let that o o overcome you. But uh, yeah, this was this was completely different. And you, you know, I have to say, there's a feeling for revenge, and uh, you had to stay focused because at the end of the day, Taliban had to be had to be taken care of. But it was Al Qaeda that launched the attack on uh, on us, and it was those elements. Uh, much harder to root out, much harder to find than than the Taliban war that we had a mission to go get. You know, I remember our sailors, you know, people would ask me, are your sailors upset about being extended? And I said, are you kidding? <laughs> they would have been upset if they had been taken home because they wanted to participate in this. As things changed, you were later this chief of station in Kabul. So that probably gave you a whole different set of risks to worry about. And I'm sure things changed over time and you guys had to change with it as the environment became a little more crowded. It's a great point to make. I was there with, with, with 10 Americans initially alone in the country, and I come back as the chief of station for Kabul. But uh, yeah, it was completely different. It was the largest station in the world at the time. I won't go into numbers, but it's massive by CIA standards. And we were building towards 100,000 coalition troops and U.S. troops. 
We had 14 bases that I had responsibility for, vice, vice just myself and nine other guys in the Pangea Valley. So it's completely different, whole different set of problems from the strategic to the tactical. There's always a push in the intelligence collection, you know, to get that big strategic gem, right? That, that, that you know, when are the Iranians going to do this? Or, you know, what's Russia, what's Putin really thinking? But in tactical intelligence, oftentimes gets short shrift. Now, in a war zone, that's dangerous. And, and I was always try to work with my people who didn't need much, much prodding. That collection of tactical intelligence to support the warfighter was equally important. Every now and then we would get information and intelligence about an IED here or something like that. And the unit would take the time to root out that it was OGA, other government agency reporting that, that, that provided that. And some sort of thank you would come back through the system. And to me, that was the absolute best. I didn't have any strategic intelligence that was as good as the feeling you would get where you could directly help U.S. military. So I'd say our reporting was roughly 50-50. At one point, maybe the 60-40 strategic tactical. But in a war zone, force protection, not only for the military, but for yourselves, is just so overwhelming. The fact that we collectively lost as few people that we did, given the dangers of that place, is a credit to, to the force protection efforts. How did the force protection efforts change or not change with the relationship that the troops had and the U.S. presence had with the Afghan people? Was that a factor and did that change over time? Yeah. The, the problem with the, you know, the Taliban, obviously, is they, they could blend into the environment. So you never knew where they were going to be. And, and yes, they could go into any community and threaten the locals who had no choice. I mean, corruption helped bring down, ultimately bring down Afghanistan, but the military and police were not willing to fight. For, for an entity that didn't take care of them, let alone pay them. But I saw remarkable efforts by the U.S. military, special forces, oftentimes, you know, the Green Berets, uh, but all the military units, and the provisional reconstruction teams. These are PRTs, they were called. These were multi-agency, interagency, and frankly, with our foreign partners working uh, in, in these regions, did a, did a lot of good work. Did it last? No. Uh, there were so many other problems inherent to Afghanistan, that those efforts couldn't ultimately be successful. But to your point, uh, I saw us do some remarkable things with the Afghan people, but there was always a risk. You know, I heard one one former general officer say, well, you could actually walk downtown and let's pick Asadabad or something. No, you couldn't. You could not walk any of those places for five minutes. You were going to live as long as it took the bad guys to, to create an operation to go kill you, go capture you. So, Phil, we, we steer very clear of politics on the show. And my humble personal belief is that no matter when we left Afghanistan, it was going to be hard. It didn't matter what administration, what have you. But as somebody who spent so much time there and who knew so many Afghans, it had to be kind of hard to, to watch just, you know, the sort of tragic end of the experiment there and how it's going now. Do you have any thoughts on that, particularly the people you knew? Yeah, you summarized it well. I mean, um, there was no one that I know who touched Afghanistan that didn't feel horrible about the way it all unfolded. And many others, a lot worse than me, who were more closely held, like a lot of the former Green Berets I'm talking about. General Ed Reeder, two-star, who's personally brought so many Afghans to this country and helped them get here prior to the events of, of the, at, the, at the ending. It's it just, just, just terrible. I was worried about their safety in many cases. And of course, they all found ways to reach out to you. You know, I had my reach outs. Other people had hundreds of reach outs. People are still getting reached out to by, by Afghans stuck inside or in neighboring countries. A lot being reached out to from neighboring countries now. At least they're relatively safe. But no, it was a terrible feeling. My interpreter in the Panchir in September 2001 was a guy named Amarullah Saleh. 
Amarula was a was a was a, a brilliant young young person and an Ahmad Shah Massoud favorite. He was the vice president of Afghanistan when it collapsed. So he got all that way from interpreter with the, the drawbreaker wow. team to the vice president and was on the run for his life into the panchier. They killed his brother. Uh, he ultimately made, I'm not even sure what country he's in now, but he's out of country. Uh, but every one of those people I, I fell for. I'm very close with General Scott Miller. Scott and I first worked together in the Balkans in the 90s. He is a young Delta Force major, me as a CIA, uh, CIA paramilitary officer. We became friends. We've been friends to this day. And... Um, I've watched him and we work together now, Scott and I, as he's just recently left the service. He still gets reach out four, five, six a day. And what can they do? I mean, you, you just can't flip a switch and save somebody. So it's a, it's, it's tough. And with, with information technology being what it is, you know, when you think about leaving Vietnam, there were probably a lot of people that had the same feeling, but they were out of touch. They couldn't even talk to the people that, that they left behind. But now it's a, it's a click away. So and Scott, he's terrific. I, I'm glad to see that he's got life after military. Speaking of life after, what are you doing now? And, and you know, you had a very exciting, uh, adrenaline-filled life. Do you miss it? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I do. And it, 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 time heals all wounds, right? So, so less so than I once did. And I left in late 2014. But I will tell you, as the Ukraine is now popping, it's hard to look at that and not say, boy, how, how would I play it? How, how would love to be in the fray? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I tell everyone, you know, you're going to have uh, better hours and make a lot more money in the private sector, but you're never, never going to have the mission that you once had. Uh, and you just have to deal with that. So if you are a young person now, or if a young person was thinking of following in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? I'd say go for it. I, I do a lot of uh, pitches informal pitches to people about CIA. And I say, go for it. The, the career is exciting. You'll love it. You know, I did, a, I did a, talk to Mike Morell one time, actually his podcast. And, uh, you know, I talked about the excitement of going to work and I'd be in my desk at 630. Some of that was to be traffic. Some of it was just to get my day going. I wanted to be there and turn on that machine and the whole world and the adventure starts. And maybe you turn it off seven, eight o'clock at night and go home. And those are long hours, but we loved it. And if you can find a job like that that you actually love and, and, and a mission, go for it. So I tell people, young people, that you're never going to be a millionaire working for the United States government, regardless of what, what branch you go to. Uh, but if you want to see the world, you want to have a real mission, be able to go do a lot of different things, um, then join CIA. I know Sandra feels the same way about her life and career. I, I know that as a young fighter pilot, you couldn't get me out of bed fast enough in the morning. I wanted to run to work. Uh, it was exhilarating and tremendously rewarding. So I know exactly how you, how you feel. Yep. Absolutely. Any uh, particular uh, life lessons about managing risk on your part? I mean, you weren't gambling when you did these things, you were managing risk. So anything that comes to mind? Look, it, it should be learning. You should be learning the entire time. If I, if I had to look back on my career and say something I should have done, should have taken advantage of the career opportunities, educational opportunities that are afforded to me. Military does this much better than CIA, where you're in the military, you, there's service schools you're going to attend, there's external uh, educational opportunities that you, you were prompted to take. You don't have that at CIA. Um, and I wish, I wish we did. So, but working with excellent people uh, on an excellent mission, I, didn't, I don't recall in 30 years meeting a single person who wasn't dedicated to the mission. Maybe in varying degrees of dedication, but everyone was there for, for the right reason. So with respect to the lessons, you know, after after we came back from missions, we had debriefs. And even when we were in training, they brought people who had worked at NASA, you know, 10, 15 years 
before back to share stories. Do they, do they have programs like that where you can go in and share stories and lessons with people who are sort of young? They do, and it's informal. I'll tell you, some of the best at it are, are the people now running the special activities uh, division of CIA or the mission center. That's the paramilitary home and capability. They're probably the best within the building for going back and recognizing and pulling back some of the experts. And they're doing it now with Vietnam vintage people, in some cases even earlier, believe it or not, and, and getting those, ex, those, those lessons down on, on paper. The agency does it too. I mean, the, the, there are a number of programs for bringing, bringing people back and sort of exploring their, their, their knowledge uh, that otherwise will be lost. You know, there is an element of nothing's new under the sun. I got it. And that's true in many respects. We're all people, but technology's changed dramatically. The next fight, and I'm not talking about Ukraine, but the next 50 year struggle with China is going to be a completely different war. Well, Phil, this has been uh, absolutely terrific. Uh, it's it's a real treat for our listeners to get to hear somebody like you talk because there's so much mystique associated with with you know intelligence and CIA and that sort of thing. And getting a real human being uh, on to talk about it, and people can realize, okay, these are dedicated people doing an important job. And I, I, the whole time we were talking, I was thinking, you know, if, when I was walking through an airport in uniform or something, people would always come up and say, thank you for your service, which was nice. And, you know, Sandra's been pretty prominent as an astronaut. People thank her. And, and you know, I always think of first responders and that sort of thing. But it's probably pretty hard for a CIA paramilitary officer to experience that feeling of gratitude from the American people for what you've done, the sacrifices you've made, the risks you've taken. So, Please, uh, on behalf of our listeners and ourselves, thank you so much for what you've done for our country over all these years. Absolutely. And it's been a delight to have you. Very nice of you to say that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Phil Riley, a former CIA paramilitary officer and the first American on the ground in Afghanistan in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Freedom Consulting Group for sponsoring this episode. Do work that matters. Check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode and be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.